Hello, and welcome to Radio Curious, interviews with those we wonder about. I'm Barry Vogel. Grace Carpenter Hudson was known as the painter lady in her hometown of Ukiah, California. She started her career as a painter when she was a teenager in the 1870s. By the time of her death in 1937, she had produced over 600 canvas paintings and numerous other works. Her skill focused almost exclusively on the lives and cultures of the Pomo Indians who lived in Mendocino County. Her husband, Dr. John Hudson, assisted her by making the study of native culture his life's work, overshadowing his profession as a physician. Grace Carpenter Hudson was a shrewd businesswoman as well as an artist of increasing renown. Most of the family income came from the sale of her artwork. I spoke with Grace Carpenter Hudson in the person of actress Laura Ferry at the Grace Carpenter Hudson Museum in Ukiah, California during an exhibition of her work. I asked her what images she sees that she then wants to reproduce as works of art. Well, a lot of my paintings are not spontaneous, they're planned. For example, John will come home and he'll tell me a myth or a legend that he learned that day from someone at the Rancheria. And I'll think, no, that's, that's interesting. I'd like to paint that. So I'll go through my collection and I'll see what I have. Um, John collects a lot of artifacts. So say, for example, I hear the legend or a story about how a woman gets gifts when she's engaged when she's to be married. married. or engaged. So I decide to paint a picture called The Dowry. And I'll go through my collection and I'll get baskets and I'll see what kind of dress I have and then I'll think about the, the Indian women I know and who might be suitable for this painting and then I ask them to sit for me and dress them up and put the different artifacts around and so I design the painting and that gives me ideas. Well let's step back in mm -hmm. terms uh, to your first time that you were painting. Mm -hmm. You saw something, it, it captured your imagination, mm -hmm. you wanted to reproduce it on right. canvas. What did you see? Well, you know, I've always liked to draw. I mean, it's, you know, some kids will sing, some kids will play, and I'll just draw. And I love my animals. My animals are very important to me. My first painting was, uh, my first animal painting was of my pet fox. I had a pet fox when I was 13, and I loved him very much. And he was a very attractive little fellow. The coloring was really beautiful, and I just wanted to paint him. So I did. And if you think of the coloring of a fox, the reddish-brown coloring, and the kind of snap and mischief in his eyes, that would make an interesting painting. And this was in your home in Potter Valley? Yes. What was your home life like as a child? Oh, it was quite fun. We always had lots of animals around, a lot of animals underfoot. There were jackrabbits and turtle doves and squirrels. My father is still is a very interesting man. He was involved in a lot of different things. He ran a newspaper, he was a photographer, so he was always coming home with lots of stories and doing things. And my mother was a wonderful writer and she wrote articles all the time about things. And there was the, the conversations at the dinner table were very stimulating and the children were very active. There was a lot to do and see. There were Indians coming to the house all the time, bringing you know, their view of the world. So it was a why wonderful place to grow up. Why were the Indians coming to your home? Well, my parents were very interested in the Native community. They, and, and, the, and the Indians were very interested in my brother and myself. You know, I'm a twin, you know. No. Oh, me. yes. Oh, yes. My, my brother Grant and I are, are twins. And that's very rare in the Indian culture. They, a lot of times they would destroy twins because they didn't know what caused them. They thought it was kind of unlucky. 
So we were twins and they found us fascinating. So they were always Indians around when we were growing up, kind of watching us grow up. And my mother entertained Captain John, who was the chief of the Rancheria, would come to our house. He'd call frequently. And, oh, he was so fun. He was such a delightful man. He would get down on the floor and, and you know, act out a bucking bronco for us or talk about, you know, fighting with a grizzly bear. And then he'd show us the scars on right. his face and his arms. And so the Indians, you know, call frequently. And my mother began collecting baskets. And so we got to know these people very at a very early age. Grace, we're here talking in the mm -hmm. museum that's named after you. Yes. Um, how does it feel to have a museum named after you? It feels quite marvelous, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone should have a museum named after them. Did you expect it? Yes. I kind of felt from an early age that I was destined for great things, and, and I think that's why I kept such an accurate record of everything I did and everything I do. Whenever I buy a basket, I write down, I have a very incredible logbook where I write down where the basket was purchased, who is the weaver, how much I paid for it. I keep very accurate records of my paintings. I number every single one of my paintings and I make a note if it's sold, how much it was sold for and who it went to. And I even keep diaries of the clothes. When I buy clothes, I keep little snaps of the material and keep a record of it that way. Did you do this for yourself or uh, intentionally for posterity? I think, I think part of it is I want to have this record, but also I just think, yes, I think I did. So I that do. After, after you cross over and mm -hmm. go to the other side, mm -hmm. uh, you would uh, be able to be known and remembered? That's right, accurately. You know. From your point of view. Right, exactly. One of your more famous pictures is Little Mendocino mm -hmm. that we're looking at now right. here in your museum. Why don't you tell me about it? Well. This is a painting of a little Indian baby uh, strapped in the transport basket that all Indian babies are placed in after they're two months old. When they're, before they're two months old, they're considered a part of the mother and they're wrapped in a little tube mat. But once they're named, they're put into a transport basket because they're then entitled to have their basket. And they're strapped up in a way that they can't, their arms are, are not free. So all they can, their whole world is just what they see from their basket. Now you'll notice there's a little toy hanging from the basket hoop. And that's, that's about all that, that little that baby can do. it's about head height. And it's the arms height. are all strapped in. Completely strapped in. Now this little baby is crying. And he's quite, quite upset. And what's so funny is the model, when I was trying to paint this picture, his face was just a stone blank. I mean, he, there was no expression on his face at all. So I, I wanted something. I wanted to smile or laugh or cry or whatever. And I kept trying to do things to him to get him, to get his face to have a little bit more expression. I'd tickle him and pinch him. And, and what did he do? Uh, nothing. Nothing. Didn't bat an eye or do anything. So after doing all these things to him, I, I felt really guilty. So I decided to offer him some candy to make up for it. And it was amazing. He just got very upset at this overture of peace and opened his mouth and just started screaming. So I got a fabulous photograph and from that I painted this, this portrait. And it's, his face is wonderful. I mean, he's just, the tears are just coursing down. He was so upset. But what's so fun about this painting is that when I first tried to show it, no art dealer in San Francisco would touch it. They Do you just, know why? Well, I think they found the subject very offensive. No one had painted Indians before. At this 
in this kind of detail. You know, there might be a giant landscape with a little, you know, Indian down lower right, but this painting is up close and personal. There's that baby's face right there, and and, and you know, you can see the the blanket. You can practically touch the the rough quality of the rope and the basket and they just found the subject matter very offensive. They just thought it was very bad. But then I had it exhibited at the old mechanics fair in, in San Francisco, and the public loved it. People just swarmed all over this painting. They just thought it was delightful. And then suddenly, art critics and art dealers and the public became very interested in my work. And because it was so, sex so successful, I started painting Indian children, babies, women, over and over again. How far into your career as an artist were you in 1892 when you painted Little well, Mendocino? Do you mean my career as, as, a, as, as a person who would sell paint paintings? Art, sell paintings, paint them for production, very for marketing? Very early. It's the very beginnings of my career. My first picture, National Thorn, my first picture that I painted that I numbered, um, what happened was I was painting that picture. It's another little Indian baby with a little dog. The baby's asleep. A gentleman came by and saw it and offered me an astounding amount of money for it, $500. I, I couldn't believe it. You accepted? I, oh yes, I definitely accepted. And he was quite complimentary. So after that, you know, I painted, I started painting these babies. But Little Mendocino was really the one that really kind of rocketed my career, so to speak. And I ended up painting so much, I painted so many paintings that I became exhausted. I, I just painted so much. And, but John, my husband John, would help me a great deal by giving me ideas for further inspiration. And, you know, sometimes I'd see a model, just as you said before, I'd see a model who would, such an attractive woman or an exquisitely beautiful baby, and I'd think, I want to paint that. I want to paint that baby. And How did these anyway. models come to you? How was it that you were able to get them to you, to your home, to your presence? Do you want me to tell you how, what I would tell the public, or do you really want to know kind of private? Well, I want to know both. Well, publicly, what I basically would tell the public when I would be interviewed by reporters, reporters come and interview me all the, all the time from local papers and magazines, is, you know, I'm a businesswoman, and I want to make money, and it's important for me to sell my work. I don't want to have to do anything else, and this is what I want to do. So people, number one, will not buy paintings if they think they're just copies of photographs. So I never, ever would let anyone know that I took photographs of my subjects. Even though you're an experienced photographer and your father trained you yes, to a great yes. extent. But you see, the public does not understand that. They think that if you use a photograph, you are less of an artist and that you're, you're somehow cheating. It's completely not true, but they see it that way. So I, my brother Grant wrote an article in which he stated that I did that, and I, I made him recant, and he did, because it's important that people just think of me as an artist and that photography is a, a totally separate issue. But people like to think of Indians as being this primitive, quaint kind of people. Why do you say that? Well, it's just... I mean, this is a white person's characterization of how th Indians This is are. what the white public likes to think of the Indian. I think the white public does not want to think of the Indian being like themselves. They're, they're just not ready for that. And they like to think of them as being primitive and simple. That way they can keep, they, they can justify their prejudice and justify the distance. So I would, when someone comes to buy a painting, I'll, you know, have, I usually have a story or a legend that comes with it, but when an, a reporter comes to talk to me about how I get my paintings, I, I kind of romanticize it a little bit so the general public kind of hears what they want to hear. 
And the truth of how you the get your The truth of the matter is, is that, you know, I know a lot of these women, a lot of the babies, they're more than willing to have me photograph their babies and paint their children because they can then keep the photograph. And a lot of these, a lot of the w women that I paint are noted basket makers. They're exquisite artists. And I know them first through their baskets because I buy a lot of baskets because I need them for my work. And John, of course, is incredibly interested in, in baskets and, and native artifacts. And he collects not only baskets, but, you know, the, the headdresses and the skirts and the weapons and just everything associated with native life. So we'll meet these, these women through buying their baskets. And they're extremely attractive, very handsome people. And then I'll ask them if they'd mind if I pose them or sketch them, and they generally don't mind at all. So that's how I get my subjects generally. Some of them are just old friends. Well, Grace, I want to ask you about the taking of the picture and mm -hmm. the photography mm -hmm. of the uh, babies themselves. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. first I want to say that I'm talking with Grace Carpenter Hudson about her experience as a painter and we're in the Grace Carpenter Hudson Museum in Ukiah, California. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Grace, uh, you've said that an, one interpretation of the Pomo culture is that it is not appropriate to be photographed and right. that if a baby were photographed and then die, that the parents would blame you. Right. Yet you photograph them. Right. Why do I do this? I've been asked this several times. Well, again, we're talking about my public life and my private life. And since since I believe none of the people in my community are going to hear this, I can tell you this in private. Publicly, I don't want people to know that, that I have easy access to my subjects. It makes it sound a lot, it makes my work sound a lot more intriguing and more mysterious if I have to, if it sounds as if I have to work very hard to get, if I have to sneak, you know, I have to sneak little pictures of the babies. And, you know, there's a grain of truth in there. There are some women who do not want me to photograph their babies. And there are some men who are afraid to be photographed. They're afraid that this will bring about a certain death. But on the whole, they don't mind being photographed at all. So there really is no threat to photographing them. But I tell the public one thing because the public wants to hear that. And I, I think that your, your audience will understand that. They've certainly bought into propaganda themselves at certain points. You know, the, the public wants to hear what the public wants to hear. Some of the uh, older Pomos <laughs> here in our community in, in Ukiah um, recall that when they or their parents were very young, mm -hmm. you painted them. Yes. And they say that um, sometimes they were not treated as well as they thought they should have been treated. Well, that uh, children were forced to pose for a long period of time and sometimes their baskets that they brought with them didn't return with them. Is there well, a truth I to that? Well, I don't, I don't, I think they, they may be exaggerating a little bit. We, we purchase baskets from, from the basket weavers themselves and, and we're very, we really respect their work and John has helped a lot of them a great deal by helping them sell their work and we really, you know, someone like Josep, I mean, that woman is an artist and we would certainly never intentionally steal any of her baskets. As far as the children posing, being, ha you know, having to hold their arms up for a long time, I often photograph children and I do sketch them and I reward them, I'll give them candy and they don't seem to be suffering all that much. I mean, if they suffered that much, they wouldn't come back and they keep coming back over and over again. So I think that's just, I think they just wanted to complain. You know, I think perhaps they feel a little resentful of the fact that 
the painting, you know, the painting of their child goes on and, and acquires fame and they don't get to have the painting, but, you know. Were you able to compensate your subjects for sitting? Well, we didn't, I didn't have a set fee that I, I give people when they sit for me, but we have certainly helped many families in the community. I mean, we are, the Mitchell family many times has asked us for money and we've always helped them as best we can. We've helped, we, uh, Josepa, her son was taken away and put, you know, put away at the Indian school in Oregon and John was incredible. He wrote so many letters trying to get her son returned. We've really tried to help them a lot in many ways and unfortunately he wasn't successful, but we have certainly helped the people that, that have helped us in any way we can. We really have. And I want to go back and pick mm -hmm. up on your comment about you being a businesswoman. Yes. That was pretty unusual, and it is pretty unusual, for a woman to be actively involved as a business professional person at the turn of the century. Right. What kind of problems, what, what kind of resistance did you encounter? Well, I, I, had, I think I had resistance on, on two, two hands. Number one, not only was I a woman, but I was painting a subject that no one else painted. In some ways, that made my work much more attractive. No one else is painting Native Americans, so no one else, you know, I'm, I'm the only thing on the market. On the other hand, most people expect a woman to stay at home and raise children and be involved in domestic arts, and that wasn't my interest at all, and really never has been. So. You know, a lot of times people would interview me and write articles, and I get the impression from the articles that they didn't quite approve of what I did or what I do. There was one article that appeared in Western Monthly that I found very offensive. What, what was it? That well, it, first of all, it, 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 it uncategorically stated that I was not a great artist because of my subject matter. That if I chose to paint something different, I could be considered a great artist. If I would, you know, paint a white person or paint fruit or vegetables in a still life and, and do it as in, and in the style and with the technique that I use on my Indian children, that I could be a great artist. But I can never be compared to the great European masters because my subject matter is so beneath me. And I, I find that very offensive. I, I think my subject matter is, is quite beautiful, quite attractive, and, and I, I want to paint these people. I, I think it's important that the world know these people before they vanish. And if I don't paint them and preserve their culture, it may disappear. So there have been people who have misunderstood me, and they have just found me perhaps a bit too bohemian for their tastes. But How much of an opportunity did you have to go to the homes of the Pomo? and to participate in their ceremonies. And I understand they came to your mm -hmm. home frequently. Well, we would go, John and I go to the Rancheria, to, especially to negotiate about baskets. If we want, for example, I know I want to paint a certain painting and I want a particular kind of basket, so I will negotiate with a basket weaver to make that particular basket for me. So we would go to the Rancheria, and while there, you know, we might be offered something to eat. We, <laughs> a really fun thing is that we have been asked to name their children. Um, you and John. Oh, too. yes. We've been asked to name their children. We have named many of the children in the community. Their, their white name is the name that we've given them. And, for example, Keulin Mitchell, she's named after Stuart Keulin, who is an anthropologist, mm -hmm. friend of John's. So we have been involved in their lives in, in a lot of ways. And we, they, they are our friends. They, I can say that. They are our friends. And they write to us when they're in need, and we're involved in their, their lives. And we've seen their children grow up from babies to adulthood. So... Well, Grace, we're 
nearing the end of mm -hmm. our time, but mm -hmm. before we conclude, I'd like you to tell us something about these five baskets that are here in okay. front of us in okay. the museum that are so different from each other. Well, baskets were made for many different reasons. Some of them were made uh, for functional purposes. For example, this is a pomo storage basket. It could have been used to store other baskets. It could have been used to store blankets or food. It's a very large basket. It's about two feet in a sphere. And that, uh, to, to make a basket that size takes an incredibly long time and a lot of different techniques are used to make it. Some of the baskets are watertight and it could have been used to carry water I'm not exactly sure what this basket was used for. There's no way of knowing, but I'm, I'm, I'm giving you the range of what sure. it could have been used for. When, if the basket is not watertight when it's made, once it is wet, then the, grain, the fibers would swell and become watertight. When you say an incredibly long time, how long? How long? Well, it really depends on what other work the woman has to do. And I say woman because most of the baskets were made by women. There were a few men who were known for their basket weaving, but primarily it was a woman's art. So it's so hard to say because it depends on what time of year it starts and they get distracted and do other things. I mean, I've, Alice Henry has promised me a basket for over a year and I still don't have it, so I don't know. It, it really depends. Grace Carpenter Hudson, I want to thank you very much thank for joining you. us on Radio Curious. Thank but you, before, I've enjoyed my time. Before we close, mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you the question I ask all of my guests. Oh, right. And that is, could you tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? An interesting book that I read lately? I'd have to say it was Edith Wharton's Edith Wharton's last book, The Age of Innocence. I found that a fascinating, fascinating book. Well, Grace, thank you for being with us. Thank you. And Laura Ferry, welcome to Radio Curious. Well, thank you. Thank you. How is it that you came to portray Grace Carpenter Hudson? Well, I'm an actor in Seattle, and I have I've written many historical plays, uh, primarily for middle schoolers and, and teenagers, and I, so I love doing research and especially his, historical research. And last year, I was commissioned by the Seattle Art Museum to do Georgia O'Keeffe. So I did a lot of research on Georgia O'Keeffe and came up with a two-person piece about the relationship between Georgia O'Keeffe and Alfred Stieglitz, the story of their lives together using only their words. And I performed that with another actor at the Seattle Art Museum. And the museum here in Ukiah heard of this and asked me to do Grace. So I had never heard of Grace Carpenter Hudson. I came down in October and spent a week going through the collection here, and the collection here is so deep and so dense and so thorough. It's, it's really wonderful. I, I went through all her letters. I went through her notebooks, her, her scrapbooks. I could read all these wonderful articles that were written at, during that time, interviews, I, photographs, amazing photographs, <laughs> photographs of, of Grace down on the floor with her dogs and, you know, hunting with the rifle over the deer. So I really got a sense of what she was like. And you can also go next door to the museum here and be in her and home. Be in her home. She and John Hudson built. That's right. The curators here are incredibly knowledgeable. I mean, if I couldn't find something, I could call them up and say, what's the name of, you know, John Car uh, uh, what's the name of AO's? photography studio, oh, it's the home gallery, Sherry would tell me, or what is, how do you pronounce this? They would know, you know, they, they filled me in on a lot of information that I, I couldn't get, and they also would direct me, that you need to read this, this is something that you'll like, you know, that they were the ones who got me that right. little book I was telling you about with the clothing, where she has this little diary of the clothes she wore, so. So when you are Grace, as mm -hmm. you were just a few mm -hmm. minutes ago, mm -hmm. what does it feel like to put yourself into the reality of another person? What is it like to be Grace? Well, you know, there's aspects of Grace's personality that I find very fun. I mean, I really admire the fact that she was a, a strong woman 
at a time when a lot of women weren't. But there's, there's aspects of her personality that I don't totally approve of. I mean, I think she was kind of patronizing towards her, her subjects. But you have to always remember that in context of the times. I mean, it was a very racist times. And, and in reality, they were, or they weren't social reformers. They didn't go out there and say, you know, we've got to treat these, these Indians the way we treat ourselves. They, they, they didn't take that step. But at the same time, they were very kind to these people. They helped them as much as they could. They, they did use them, but at the same time, they really respected their rituals and myths and legends. They appreciated their artistry. So it, it was a time uh, within 50 years of contact with white people. So many right. of the Pomo people remember when there were no white right, people. Right. And, and she, she writes about the impact the whites had on the Pomo civilization. She thought that she was preserving a dying culture. She thought by the end of her life they would be, they would be gone because so many had died, so much had been lost through the advent of the white people. In her parents' generation, I mean, her parents came across the Oregon Trail in 1856. They were one of the first white settlers to come here. And, you know, they saw decimation. They saw what happened to the, the Indian culture in just those 40 years. And not just in Mendocino County, no, but all over all the West. Over, all over. So she and her husband both felt that they were preserving something that wouldn't be around. And it's, it it's truly is amazing that today, of course, the Pomo culture is still very much alive. And so she was wrong. But, you know, if things had kept going the way they were headed, they would, they'd all would have been gone. Laura, what other projects uh, or characterizations do you have on your plate? Do I have coming up? Yes. I don't have anything right at the moment. I'm presently working on a play about refugees from El Salvador, and I just finished doing a play about medieval times, and I'm looking forward to writing a specific play about the pilgrims coming over on the Mayflower. And I want to show, again, I think that's a really another interesting story. I, the pilgrims were not these quaint little people in little outfits. They were very racist. Incredibly, oh, they were so nasty to the people. You know, they, they left England for religious freedom and just were just terrible to other Quakers. I, I just think it's fascinating. I love history. And uh, as for me personally, impersonating someone, I love doing this. I'd love to do uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder and Willa Cather. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other women I'd like to do. Well, I want to thank you, thank Laura, you. for being with us on Radio Curious okay. and ask you the same question that I asked Grace. Mm -hmm. Have you read any interesting books oh. lately? Oh, yes. I read a lot of interesting books. Um, I think Stones from the River by Ursula Hagee was the last book I read that made a very strong impression on me. I really love that book. Tell us about it. It's, uh, oh, it's a wonderful book. It's about the story of a small community in Germany during right, be right after World War I through the 20s into the beginning of the Hitler and then through World War II. And it's just fascinating, the microcosm of this little small town in Germany and what they go through and the changing allegiances through the times. And it's all told through the eyes of a, a dwarf. Trudy and the woman who wrote it is German herself and she's quite an exquisitely beautiful writer and it's a fascinating book. It'd make an incredible play. <laughs> it's really wonderful. Laura Ferry, thank you for joining thank us you. and thank you for bringing Grace Carpenter Hudson to Radio Curious. It was my pleasure. This conversation with Grace Carpenter Hudson, recorded at the Grace Carpenter Hudson Museum in Ukiah, California, was actually done with the able impersonation of Grace Carpenter Hudson by actress Laura Ferry during an exhibition 
of Grace Carpenter Hudson's paintings that occurred in March of 1997. The book that Grace Carpenter Hudson recommended is The Age of Innocence by Edith Morton. Laura Ferry recommended Stones from the River by Ursula Hege. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.